Good evening. Welcome to the 699th regular meeting of the Civil War Roundtable of Chicago. And I am pleased to introduce this evening Sue Boardman on the Gettysburg Cyclorama, which has not only Chicago roots, but Milwaukee roots. And the uh, presentation last night was very interesting. We're all going to know a lot more about art after this evening. If you could stand and join me for the Pledge of Allegiance. OK, so we're going to pretend, OK? Oh, yes. OK. I pledge allegiance to the flag of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Thank you, Sue. Tom Trescott, I invite you up to the podium. Tom is going to uh, present his monthly sesquicentennial minute. Thank you, Ray. On this date, 150 years ago, March 11th, 1861, the Confederate Congress in Montgomery unanimously approved the Constitution of the Confederate States of America. It had taken them just 35 days, less than half the time it took the Founding Fathers to write the U.S. Constitution. While the Confederate Constitution nearly mirrored the U.S. Constitution, there were some important differences. Unlike the U.S. Constitution, the Confederate had no qualms about using the word slave in the document. It expressly protected slavery in the Confederacy and its territories, specifically those of African heritage, saying, quote, no law denying or impairing the right of property a Negro slave shall be passed. And while the United States allowed the individual states to decide for themselves whether or not to be slave states, the Confederate Constitution declared that all Confederate states were slave states, allowed slave owners to take their slaves to any new Confederate territories, and strengthened the fugitive slave law. Ironically, the delegates did not incorporate the right of secession and nullification into their new Constitution, took away some major states' rights, and created a president stronger than his U.S. counterpart, one who would serve a single six-year term with the power of line-item veto and strong control over appropriations. Meanwhile, in Washington, one week into his office, President Abraham Lincoln was informed by General-in-Chief Winfield Scott that Scott was not sure how much longer Major Robert Anderson could hold out at Fort Sumter without being resupplied, and that to resupply re and reinforce the fort would take, quote, a fleet of war vessels and transports, 5,000 regular troops and 20,000 volunteers, and from six to eight months. Thank you. And before we start our dinner tonight, I just want to remind you about raffle tickets and all the, the sale, the proceeds go to uh, Battlefield Preservation. So Mary and Rob are at the, at the front table, at the back table, to, um, to take your money. Have a nice dinner. I'd like to invite you up to talk about the 22nd Annual Kankakee Symposium. Okay, thank you, Ray. Uh, we have a, a very exciting program on... Um, which is uh, next Saturday, a week from uh, tomorrow. Uh, we have, uh, this is the 22nd year 
And uh, every year they have some good speakers at Kankakee. Dale Phillips, the new superintendent at uh, Springfield at the uh, Lincoln uh, Museum is uh, speaking. Terry Winchell, who has been a good friend of ours uh, from uh, Vicksburg. He's gonna talk about the Battle of Vicksburg. We have uh, the Lincoln-Douglas duo, who are absolutely tremendous. They've been on C-SPAN several times. George Buss and Tim Connors. And uh, they're going to do uh, a great presentation on Lincoln and Douglas. And then uh, one of the best speakers I've heard recently, and Ed Bars agrees, and the book is tremendous, Eric Jacobson from, the, uh, from uh, Franklin is going to speak on the Battle of Franklin. I've seen him twice, uh, and every time he gives a different speech, a different aspect about the Battle of Franklin, but he is absolutely sensational. So if you need, uh, if you want to go, uh, it's uh, $50. It's a week from tomorrow, and I'll be glad to uh, give you the uh, flyer uh, at the end of the speech. Thank you. Bob Stoller, are you finished with your carrot cake? Want to come up here anyway and talk about the tour that's how many weeks away? Are we talking like six or seven? Where's your hat? I left it. I left it. I lost it, uh, Roger. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, if you want to, we're looking for participants to, uh, to uh, blow up the uh, mine shaft again. So we, we need some reenactors for that. Seriously, though, it's getting late. If you're procrastinating about being on the tour, we want to fill the buses. We have about, I think after tonight, we're into the 80s as far as uh, the number of people are signing up. But um, it will be a great tour. It will be with Ed Bars and Will Green. We go to Appomattox, and we go all over Petersburg. And I remember talking to Ray several years ago about having it this time of year so we could avoid NASCAR. Guess what's in town on the weekend of our tour? NASCAR. There you go. And just an FYI, NASCAR does not affect the southern part of Richmond as it, as it does the northern part. So that's why when I was shopping for hotels for my tour last year, they wouldn't even book us for, for race weekend. So when Bob actually got a booking two years in advance and that he just finds out that it's race weekend, I called my hotel and said, you know, why was it so difficult for me? Uh, as everything seems to be in life. Um, and <laughs> Bob had, um, <laughs> I'll get out the violin. <laughs> Uh, Bob had no problem booking his hotel, and you know they don't—they do not announce NASCAR or race weekend in Richmond until the October before. So anyhow, I was like, why did Bob get to book his tour two years ago, and they—and they didn't even ask about? Thank you, thank you. So anyhow, after we found out about this, I, I actually called my base hotel, and they said that it doesn't affect. Uh, the, the south part of, uh, the southern part of uh, Richmond like it does the northern part. Anyhow, okay. Brian Sider is here to uh, talk about the 2012 tour. Uh, hi, just uh, two uh, brief notes. Uh, number one, thanks to everyone already that's uh, given money already towards the 2012 tour. We're going to uh, Chickamauga and Chattanooga. 
Um, it's going to be two buses, Ed Bars, Jim Ogden. We're going to do a couple of interesting things. We're going to go down, uh, down to Browns Ferry. We're going to take the Southern Bell down to Tennessee, and then we're going to go up upstream for the evening. We also have planned like a blue and gray uh, barbecue, which they had did at the Widow Davis house, uh, Macklemore's Coast. So we got a couple of good things going already for the tour. Uh, so if you, if you want to, it's two buses, it's a $100 check if you want to reserve that ahead of time, just something to consider. And also concerning uh, something to consider is uh, one of the goals for the roundtable is on Bob's tour, um, one of the things we do is uh, on the Petersburg tour and all the tours is we try to give out, uh, Ed Bars gets to give out, uh, from the round table, two checks for $1,000 each to the battlefields of his choosing. Uh, coming into tonight, we had raised uh, $650 uh, towards the $2,000 uh, we are trying to put together for the tour to give out the two checks to the battlefields of Ed's uh, choosing. So if you could please consider that. There's also some information on that in the bulletin, and uh, thank you. I'm very proud to announce to the group that there is a newly formed publicity committee, and Janet Linhard has been wonderful to chair that committee. Thank you so much, Janet. And you'll notice that our uh, upcoming lectures are publicized in the Chicago Tribune, the Reader, Chicago Magazine, and that is all a result of Janet's efforts. So I want to give her a round of applause. Cindy Heckler um, volunteered to be our liaison with Civil War Times. So we, as a roundtable, have a subscription to the Civil War Times. And I want to make an announcement that if, I'm sorry, Civil War News? Okay, Civil War News. So if any individual member of this roundtable uh, subscribes to the Civil War News, they will in turn give us, our roundtable, a $10 donation. So thank you, Cindy, for arranging all that. Okay, so some upcoming local events. Next Tuesday, March 15th, the Lincoln Davis Roundtable, Valerie Gugula presents Mary Todd Lincoln, one re week from today, March 18th, Salt Creek Roundtable, Ray Glick on the Civil War Horses, Part 2. And then March 24th, South Suburban Roundtable, Fred Johansson will host a discussion on Lee at Gettysburg. So I want to uh, um, announce right now that remind everyone that we have a raffle back there. This is our last time to buy tickets. We're going to take a 10-minute uh, restroom break, and then our presentation will begin. Gentle guests tonight, our um, honored guest speaker is Ken Boardman. And his wife, Susan. No, I got it backwards. <laughs> backwards. How could I do that? <laughs> I did it because Ken's name comes first. Well, Susan, you are the star tonight. 
Jean Carnes. Where's Jean? Kevin Kelsey. Don Pitson and Dorothy Pitson. Okay, thank you very much for coming. Hope to see you again, all of you. It's time for the raffle. I just want to say to anybody that has purchased the book, Gettysburg and Art and Artifacts, which was penned by somebody that's talking right now, that book would not have been possible without tonight's speaker who made the book better than I was hoping it would be. So thank you. Let her pick the first. Oh, and by the way, our speaker has generously donated a copy of her book to the raffle. 241096. I can juggle. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. Here. Oh, take them. Yeah, get them both. Okay. Next, we have 241269. Two four one two six nine. Maybe Ray. Uh... Two six nine. Next. Ray, you want to try the next one? Keep in mind, we have a number of books back there for sale for battlefield preservation. We have the Ed Bars Fund, 241201. Larry's mixed up enough. <laughs> Think so. <laughs> no, I know so. <laughs> 241076. So far tonight, we raised $218. <laughs> you, you have to buy tickets to win. What's left? T take that one. <laughs> 241294. Coincidentally, many members of the Battlefield Preservation Committee win, win because many members of the Battlefield Preservation Committee buy tickets. <laughs> and they buy a lot of tickets. 241091. I think it's contagious. All right. All right. Uh, 
The Joint Committee on the Conduct of the Raffle will be meeting at its usual time. <laughs> 241110. Have you got any 240s in there? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We raised $218 for Battlefield Preservation tonight. Inspector General Tom Truscott, to the podium, please. Thank you, Madam President. Uh, here's tonight's quiz. Susan Boardman speaking on the Gettysburg Cyclorama. One, true or false? Fall Philippito, am I pronouncing that name right? Okay, <laughs> just checking. Uh, produced the Cyclorama of the Battle of Gettysburg in Paris and did all the painting himself. That's false. While he did do it in Paris, he had five assistants, including his father, who was also an artist. Uh, two, in what city was the Gettysburg Cyclorama first exhibited? The answer is B. In here in Chicago, 1883. Three, the success of the Cyclorama inspired what Chicago-based company to produce their own Gettysburg print, leading to a series of Civil War battle scenes? That is B, Curzon Allison. Four, true or false, Gettysburg was the only Cyclorama that Philip Pateau ever did. Uh, that's false. Actually, it was kind of especially. He did some for uh, like a Franco-Prussian War and other European battles. Uh, five, what glaring historical error did Philip Pateau commit in his depiction of Confederate General Louis Armistead? He was uh, shown mounted when he was actually making the charge on foot. Uh, six, name the famed Gettysburg photographer who assisted the artist with panoramic camera studies of the battlefield from atop a wooden tower at the angle. That is C, William H. Tipton. Seven, of the many Civil War battle cycloramas, the only one still extant is Atlanta. Uh, eight, true or false, although the cyclorama recreates Pickett's charge, General Georgie Pickett is nowhere to be seen. That's false, although he's way in the background. Uh, nine, Paul Philippoteau also produced another work of Civil War art and oil owned by the Chicago History Museum entitled General Grant at Fort Donaldson. And finally, t ten, Philippoteau took the artistic liberty to depict who was a Union officer. The answer is, of course, D, Marshall Krolik. Uh, no, actually it's A. Uh, himself, he depicted himself as an officer uh, with a sword leaning against a tree. Uh, the top score was six, and uh, it's uh, Randy Rowland, I believe, is the name. So, but thank you. Last night, I had the sincere pleasure of driving to and from Milwaukee with the Boardmans, Sue and Ken raised their uh, children, what city was that? Danville. In Pennsylvania? Danville. Danville? Okay, Danville, Pennsylvania. They worked at the same hospital. Sue was an ER nurse for 23 years. Ken ran the clinical lab for over 25 years. And they up and moved to Gettysburg before Sue passed the um, Battlefield Guides exam. They knew they had, it, had to be at Gettysburg. It was a calling. And um, Ken, they bought the uh, antiques uh, dealer in the square. And Sue has been a licensed battlefield guide since 2000, ha is a two-time recipient of the Super Superintendent's Award for Excellence in Guiding. And you will find out tonight exactly why. And she's here to present to you the Gettysburg Cyclorama.
Can you all hear me now? I really would rather not use this because they move around, but if I have to, I will. So will you give me the high sign if you can't hear when I'm talking over here? I won't hesitate. Thank you very much. All right, ladies and gentlemen, how many in this room have seen the psychorama of the Battle of Gettysburg before conservation? How many have seen it since conservation? Not many. What are you waiting for? Well, after tonight, I think you'll just all be flocking there on airplanes and buses to see it, okay? So, now let me tell you. We did our brand new museum and people walk in the door and we were very, very prudent to put the bathrooms right inside the front door because that used to be the first question everybody asked. Where's the bathroom? The second question everybody asks when they look at the panel of things to do in Gettysburg was, cyclorama, what's a cyclorama? So let's start there. What's a cyclorama? Hold on a minute till I turn myself on. There we go. All right, it is described as large panoramic painting shown in the round. That's pretty simple. Now, it's very interesting to note that panoramas actually started in Europe, round things like we have. We, the Americans, coined the phrase cyclorama. Not sure why, but we did. So when I say panorama or cyclorama, it's the same thing. But you'll see that it is started in Europe. Actually, the patent was 1785 when a Scotsman by the name of Barker climbed up on a hillside, surveyed the landscape of Edinburgh around him, and then figured out how to paint it. So it isn't until the 1880s or the, eight, the late 1800s that it actually really caught on. And then it was called the art, first art for the masses. And it didn't take long for the Americans to catch up with the Europeans and make some of their own. But the first one shown in America was a work known as the Siege of Paris that was shown at the Philadelphia Centennial Celebration in 1876, and that happened to be painted by a guy named Henry Filippito and his kid, Paul. More on Paul in a minute. Okay, so, cycloromas were displayed in special auditoriums. How many people recall the building in Gettysburg that housed the cycloroma? Called a rotunda. The rotundas were always built specifically for that purpose, and you'll see their size, 400 by 50. That's big. Now, these, build, these buildings are standardized so that, let's say I painted the Battle of Shiloh and Boston up there had the Battle of Gettysburg and people got bored with Gettysburg or people got bored with Shiloh, so we'd switch. Well, as long as the buildings remain standard size, that could be done, and that's what happened. They traveled all over the country. Hundreds were painted and exhibited during the late 1800s, yet most were lost or destroyed as their audiences became fascinated by motion pictures. Let me hearken back to the size, 400 by 50. Could you explain to me how you lose something that big? I have no idea. <laughs> Most cycloramas depicted historic events, such as sweeping landscapes. There was one about the uh, Niagara Falls, was a real famous one. Great battles, lots of those. Religious themes, crucifixion. Jerusalem on the day of the crucifixion. Yeah, Jerusalem on the day of the crucifixion was a very popular topic for cycloramas. But our American Civil War, the timing of it, was perfect to play into this huge genre of these massive landscape paintings. So that was the subject of almost all of the American cycloramas. Now let me show you. These are souvenir covers of <coughs> booklets you would buy when you went to see the cyclorama, and these are from other battles. Battle of Vicksburg, Atlanta, Missionary Ridge. These two were made in Milwaukee. This is the Battle of Bull Run, or, or Second Manassas, and this is the Battle of Shiloh. 
Very popular cyclorhombic. But guess what is the most popular? Gettysburg. <coughs> Many cities saw Gettysburg. These are different covers from different times that it was shown around the country. That one on the end is a particular delight. That is when the Gettysburg was shown in Melbourne and Sydney, Australia. They loved it. They had it for 10 years. We also know Tokyo had one, and we also know that Canada had one. Now, it's a very artistic endeavor. Of course it is. It's a big round oil painting, right? But it's not just, it's a little different than just an oil painting. It was actually, you usually had a guy who chose the theme, and then he would do all the homework, and then he would assemble a skilled team to work with him. Now, each guy on the team had their own job. There was at least two landscape painters, and they're the most important guys. If they fail, the whole thing falls apart. But then you might have a guy who only paints horses, maybe a guy who only paints faces, a guy who only paints uniforms, maybe a guy who only paints weapons. So the team was superintended by the lead artist, and our lead artist is Paul Philip Bateau. He created four Gettysburgs, four original Gettysburgs, for the cities of Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, and New York. There'll be more than that. Hold on in a minute. This is the part of cycloromas that people don't understand because no one in our <laughs> lifetime ever saw one in this country properly exhibited. Now, by proper exhibition, this is what I mean. It not only has whoa, hold on here. I got a little heavy on the. There you go. It had to be in a circular uh, shape, but it also had to be hyperbolic. Now, that means an hourglass with the viewer on the inside. Okay, so keep that in mind. It also had to have an overhead canopy, a diorama, which is artificial foreground, and it had to be from an elevated platform. And I'm going to show you why this works in just a minute. Not since the 1890s has Gettysburg or any other cyclorama been properly shown. So today, Gettysburg, you get to see it again. That's an 1800s experience. Now, this is how it works. Notice how these people here are on this elevated platform like you are at Gettysburg. This is why that works. Let's say the, the, um, the, the lead painter wants to paint Gettysburg. So he goes off to Cemetery Ridge, and he stands there on, on the ground, and he looks around. Well, he can see pretty far, but he can't see much in the, in the faraway distance. But what if he climbed up on a 30-foot wooden platform? Then all of a sudden, the landscape opens up for miles. That's where mostly the Psychorama's <laughs> perspectives were painted from. So if the artist goes up 30 feet to, to paint it, you must go up 30 feet to view it. Now, knowing that it's a hyperbolic shape, if you were to view it from down here, look how distorted it would look if it stuck out like this. It would be like looking up the side of a bowl. It wouldn't work. It would look fun. So you have to be on the platform. The other important parts are, you see this, this overhead canopy right here? This canopy is designed so that these people can't see the upper edge of the painting. See the sight line? And the diorama is so that these people can't see the bottom edge of the painting. If you can't see the top and you can't see the bottom and there's no left or right because it's round, your eye is suddenly <coughs> deceived by this whole panorama around you and it becomes 3D. And it really does work. Okay, so that's, that's the parts. <coughs> now, this is things people actually said when this cyclorama opened to the public in the late 1800s. They said it was, there was a suspension of reality that took your breath away. The effect was simply astounding. So realistic it could be confused with reality. That's pretty heady stuff, don't you think? Now, this is our lead artist, Paul Philippe Pateau. He was born in Paris about the same time as most of our Civil War veterans. 
up there in the middle 1840s. And he's going to pick the topic and then get to work. And it's going to do him, it's going to take him a whole year to do the homework to create the first painting. So here's what he does. He's going to visit the battlefield in 1882. He spends upwards of maybe three months on the battlefield at Gettysburg, making sketches, taking pictures, doing all that. Then he hires Mr. Tipton, William Tipton, to take pictures from the platform. Then he will study maps in the War Department to get it right. Then he'll interview participants. We know he talked to General Gibbon, General Webb, General Doubleday, and General Hancock, among others. <coughs> then he will create a study. Now a study is a miniature version, a miniature oil painting all finished in color. And when I say miniature, I don't mean miniature. I mean one to 10 scale, which places it about five feet in height and about 40 feet in length. Now once that little, that study is completed and he's very satisfied with it, He'll redraw it in pen and ink. Then he takes the pen and ink and he draws grid lines on it like a massive piece of graph paper. So now you've got pen and ink drawing, graph lines on it, and now you take your, fin your canvas, your raw 400 by 50 foot canvas, you hang it up in a circular thing, make it go hyperbolic, and then you project the sketches with their graph lines up on the canvas. And then you put your team to work. We'll talk about those grid lines in a little while. Next, he's going to supervise his entire team, put them to work. It takes about a year to create the first Gettysburg after a year of preparation. So, this is how it would have looked. Here's the viewing platform, which had to be in the studio. The studio where you make one of these looks kind of like the studio where you would go to see one of these. So here's the studio. Here's the viewing platform. Super, the supervisor's up there on the platform. Here's a track laying around near the painting and scaffolding with various levels so that the artist could work. Now, let me give you a little bit of insight. There was one of these Sokoroma studios in Milwaukee. And then they made an Atlanta. When the Atlanta was made, it goes off to Atlantic. It's kind of ratty looking by the 1940s. So the 1950s, they do a conservation. The man who was leading the conservation's name was Wilbur Kurtz. Mr. Kurtz, in writing to the Gettysburg Park in the, in the 1950s, described the work, this work, like this. He said, the setup for the painting of a cyclorama was somewhat like the huge room in which they were exhibited. A circular track with two rails ran around the base of the canvas, and the wheeled scaffold was shifted on the track. After painting for a while, the artists would ascend to the viewing platform and over foaming signs of the product that still makes Milwaukee famous, <laughs> they would contemplate their work and no doubt regret it for one simply cannot see what one is painting in relation to other parts close up. I hear that's pretty true. So, on we go. Here's a nice, cool recreation of what it must have looked like with Mr. Tipton and Mr. Philip Atoe standing up on that wooden platform. You may recognize the landscape. This is Cemetery Ridge down there. It's Big Round Top. This is what it would have looked like at the time. And let me show you some of those pictures. This is the same view looking down toward, to the south, toward the Round Tops. Here's the piece of the painting that matches it. And here's the view today. How remarkable that our state of preservation of the Gettysburg battlefield allows the very same view shed to be had today. It's pretty exciting. But what I want to illustrate to you is that this Gettysburg cyclorama is not just somebody's wild imagination of what it must have looked like. It's actually an historic document. He strove for accuracy, and he did, for the most part, get accuracy. Let me show you two more. They're really neat. This one's looking due east, or sorry, due west. 
This is Seminary Ridge over here, the tree line. If you were here, if this was today, you would see General Lee on his equestrian monument right there. Rob, you know General Lee, the hero of Gettysburg. <laughs> <laughs> All right, anyway, this is the bloody angle of 71st Pennsylvania Monument will be right there. Here's the piece of the painting that matches, and here is the same view today. Pretty neat, isn't it? All right, one more. This is looking due north. You're traveling up Hancock Avenue toward the Bryan Farm, which is the white barn and house up here in the orchard. Here's the view that matches it from the painting, and here is the view today. Now, the pen and ink drawings. This is Mr. Heine over here. He's the one that created the Atlanta. We don't own any of the original Gettysburg drawings. They've never been found. But it just so happened, about five years ago, the Atlanta ones turned up on eBay. Is the eBay just too cool? Nobody knew what the heck they were because nobody's geeky enough like me to know how you make a cyclorama. But anyway, this is, so this is one of the Atlanta drawings. Now here's why it, why it was so necessary to have these grid lines projected onto this canvas, which remember was in an odd shape. Let's say your, your team, your artistic team, had a guy named George. George had a fight with his wife that morning before he went off to paint the painting. So he's kind of uptight, stressed out. His paint strokes are kind of tightened like this, but maybe George had a beer for lunch and he's feeling real fine. So his breast strokes are like this, big and beautiful. Well, what do you think the horse would look like if Joe was on one end and George was on the other? It wouldn't work. You gotta have guidelines for people. So the, these grid lines afforded guidelines to allow 20 different people to stay true to the original sketch. Now, it's important to know that in the, in the true size of the work, these guidelines are four foot squares. So get an idea how big they are, okay? Now, if you have a set of drawings, conceivably, you could do the first painting, but then you could go and make another one because you have the drawings, right? Then you can make another one and maybe another one. That's exactly what happened. This is Chicago's. Here you have Boston, here you have Philadelphia, here you have New York. The content remained the same throughout all four. What did change periodically was the style of the painting. Clearly the Chicago horse painter was not the same guy who painted the other three. So that was, the, you could see slight variations in how things were executed, but wherever you see something positioned, it remained in that location on all of them. There was one major difference, which I'll tell you about in a minute. Well, there's a couple, but one big one. So first painting opens in Chicago and it was a glorious success. The rotunda was on the corner of Wabash and Hubbard. And here's how the whole operation came down. Mr. Willoughby, Charles Willoughby, a pretty well-known entrepreneur here in, in Chicago, saw the siege of Paris. And he thought, this cyclorama thing just might make some money. So he calls, well, he doesn't call. He writes off to Paris because he knew the siege of Paris was made by Mr. Philip Pateau. So he, he writes over there and he tries to arrange to have Philip Pateau create an American cyclorama and so the son took up the job. Now the son, Paul, will be paid $50,000 for the first painting. Now, wanna know what that is today? 1.4 million. That's not bad for 1883. Okay, so then while Mr. Philip Bateau is working real hard for that year to make the painting, Mr. Willoughby is setting up a stock company here in Chicago, and he will have the stock company build the rotunda. Now, once the painting is done, he will sell it to the stock company for $200,000. Now, that's over $4 million. So far, no one's seen the dang thing, and it's made a couple of million bucks. So, now at the rate of 50 cents a ticket, 
This Cyclorama exhibition will make, here in Chicago, a million dollars the first year. That's 23 million in today's money. Is that incredible? No wonder he got excited and turned around and, makes, and orders another one and then two more after that. But in any case, let me tell you a little bit about Chicago. Here it is, here's the crowd. This is a little bit later. The building itself that stood on the corner of Wabash and Hubbard is no longer standing. It was raised for office buildings in the Masonic, it was the Masonic building put on that corner in 1921. So it's not here anymore. There is, however, one rotunda left standing and that's the one in Boston. So anyway, here's the rotunda. Now, guess who was one of the most frequent visitors to the Cyclorama exhibition? The veterans, they loved it. They absolutely loved it. Of course, they were also quite critical, having been there. They knew the mistakes, of course. So, but I will tell you, you all have a letter that was sitting on your seat when you got here. That's a letter from a veteran, a Pittsburgh man who was in Chicago in 1885 working. He was a, a glass stainer or painter, and he was here working. But he wrote a letter back to his son, Willie, back in Pittsburgh, and you have a copy of that letter. In that letter, he goes on for four pages raving about this cyclorama. And he says, only someone who, could, who knows a battlefield and knows art could appreciate this cyclorama. Well, he was kind of wrong there. Everybody appreciated it. But let me tell you how truly popular it was. This guy, Major General John Gibbon, Union Second Corps at the angle that day, will see it and write a letter to this guy, General Hunt, Chief of Artillery at Gettysburg. And in that letter, he'll see this. It is simply wonderful. I never had an idea that the eye could be so deceived by paint and canvas. Now that's a good endorsement. Could have had something to do with the fact that Mr. Gibbons in it, but we won't cover that. <laughs> in any case, he goes on in the letter to say, a battery of artillery is coming up at a gallop and close by you, meaning General Hunt, are on an iron gray horse, Major Osborne alongside of you, speaking to a wounded artillery officer on foot. So here it is, there's General Hunt, right there in the and the V right behind the ridge. This was so popular, I'm gonna give you an idea how popular. If you were a farmer in 1885 and you wanted to buy a piece of farm equipment, you're gonna go out and buy the most popular piece of equipment on the planet at that time, the Cyrus McCormick Reaper. Wanna see the ad for the Cyrus McCormick Reaper? <coughs> right smack dab in the middle of the Gettysburg Cyclone. <laughs> That's instant eye recognition. Is that cool or what? <laughs> if you were going to do something like that today, it would make just as much sense. You would take something clearly noticeable, well-known, and you would just do something to make people remember it. Right? Okay, so moving on. Number two opens in just a little over a year later for the city of Boston. Again, wildly popular, so two more are created. One for Philadelphia and one for the city of New York. So four years, four paintings. The first two are made over in Europe. The second two, Philippa Toves threw a studio together in New York because he got tired of paying the heavy duties when the shipping in these massive paintings into America. <clears throat> so two made in Europe, two made in New York. So that makes this a little unusual. Wait, before I get there. This is when, and when the New York version opened. You all know General Webb over there at the angle? Well, he is at that time the president of the city of New York and he's going to write an endorsement for the newspaper. In that endorsement, he says, it is as near perfection as possible. Not that. Anyway, oh, and by the way, he's in it, of course. <laughs> Everybody who writes an endorsement seems to appear somewhere in the painting. Okay, so the one major difference in Chicago is this. 
This is the Chicago scene looking due east. When the veterans saw it, they questioned Mr. Willoughby, the entrepreneur who ordered the painting. They said, where's Meade's headquarters? We can't see it. Well, Willoughby had no idea where it was. So he wrote a letter off to Philip Pateau and he asked about it. And Philip Pateau said, I couldn't see it from my vantage point. But Mr. Willoughby, or Mr. Willoughby was insistent that if the veterans wanted it, he better get it in there. So he sends a picture off to, to France and there you have this building we'll refer to as Meade's headquarters even though it's not in the right position in the painting. So now apparently everybody's happy. Anyway, this article now appears in 1886. Four paintings are existing in the United States and they were made in Europe and New York. And then this article appears in a Chicago newspaper and it says this, Chicago is the center of the panorama business? And it's more extensive than most people imagine. There are several, there are several factories. Notice they're not calling them studios, they're calling them factories nearby where painters are always at work on panoramas, not new paintings, but those already known to fame. Who do you think, what do you think they're making? Gettysburg. There's somewhere, they said, upwards of two dozen knockoffs. We call them knockoffs today. They call them Buckeyes. That's kind of a slanderous nickname. And if you're from Ohio, I apologize. <laughs> but anyway, Buckeyes at that time, if you, if you imagine a, a, a Buckeye tree, which we had when I was growing up, we called it a horse chestnut tree. Fruit's no good to eat and you can't use the wood for anything, so consequently it's referred to as an inferior tree. Therefore, anything thought to be of inferior quality was nicknamed Buckeye. Consequently, all these knockoffs were called Buckeyes. So, this is what's really odd. The people who made the Buckeyes didn't owe Mr. Filippito a dime because there was no copyright laws. So, now there's a dozen copies plus the original four running around the country with all the other ones. Now, this is just a definition of a Buckeye. Notice, and no offense here intended at all, but it was originally used to get a, used, a derogatory word used for bad doctors and lawyers. Then it went on to just refer to bad paint jobs. <laughs> These are some of the Buckeyes. All it would take is a set of Filippito's original drawings and you could make yourself a copy. So. This copy up here was E.J. Austin. He worked for Philippito. When Philippito was done with all four, E.J. Austin went and found work somewhere else, in Chicago, making copies. <laughs> so these are all, most of these are made in um, Chicago, and this is the comparative original version. As you can see, some are so similar, you wouldn't know you were looking at a copy. Okay, so now, if you went to see a cyclorama painting, the first thing you want to do is buy yourself a souvenir program because tucked inside the front cover was a key to the painting. And that's how you knew what you were looking at. You just line it up from where you're standing, look at the numbers, look at the, the painting, and it told you what you were seeing. But there was a better way to see the Gettysburg Cyclorama. If you caught a night when there was somebody on the platform lecturing, a veteran, would that not be the coolest way to see the Cyclorama? Hearing it right from a guy who stood there, we have two veterans from the Battle of Gettysburg we know served as lecturers. This is Charles Hale. He fought with the 5th New Hampshire, and he fought in the Wheatfield. So he's going to go on to be the lecturer for the Philadelphia painting. And this guy over here, some of you may be familiar with, his name is John Chase. He got those ugly wounds at Gettysburg, and he's going to serve as lecturer for the New York version. He was disabled, so he found work doing something else. Now, as quickly as Cyclorama shot to the forefront of the American attention, 
it died just that quickly. One decade, that's all it got, one short decade. But then somebody invented the motion picture camera and that ruined it for the cyclorama exhibitions. Nobody wanted to see them when they could go see a moving picture. Consequently, well, first let me tell you a little idea of how really bad off it was, okay? This is an advertisement that appears in the New York newspaper, Brooklyn Daily Eagle, in the entertainment section in 1889. Among the things advertised for sale in amusement agencies are a circus wagon, performing dogs, the Battle of Gettysburg Cyclorama, <laughs> a Pullman car, and a demon child. <laughs> well, it's easier to store a demon child than it is to store a Cyclorama. <laughs> now, this might surprise you a little bit. We just invested $13.8 million in our painting, but exactly 100 years ago, one of them was sold for $1 here in Chicago to a junk dealer. Can you believe that? I guess it's all in how you perceive it, huh? Okay, so what happens to them? Chicago's version of the Gettysburg was here in Chicago and enjoyed a good run. And then in 1890, they shut the doors, they took it down and refurbished it for 18 months because they anticipated huge crowds for the 1893 World's Expo held here in Chicago. So that it was reopened in time to take advantage of all the crowds who came here. Now, no one knows what happened to it after that, but one of the promoters who handled the Buckeye versions, he claims the original Gettysburg burned in a warehouse fire. Greek Pardon me? Greek fire. Oh, uh, well, one of those probably, yeah, we, we know about those. <laughs> Philadelphia's version went on to Cincinnati on loan for a couple years, and then it moved on, and, er, yeah, and then it went on to New Orleans, and after that, no one ever remembers seeing it again. So don't know what happened to it. We do know fire was a big, was a big thing, and also some of them just, just got destroyed, being taken down and rehung. Brooklyn's went to Union Square, just another place in New York City for a while, then it went on to Baltimore and Washington. Sometime after that, it was cut apart in pieces, pretty big pieces, put in frames and distributed to veterans posts so they could hang them on the wall. Now some of those pieces have turned up. The Gettysburg National Military Park owns two of them. And two others just came up recently in an auction. And silly me, I, I you know, put in a bid for $5,000 thinking I'm going to own me a piece of this cyclorama. It went for $12,000. In any case, the Boston version is the one we'll follow now because that's the one that's still alive and able to be seen. So Boston's version, 1890 to 1900, when it was done in Boston, it gets loaned to Philadelphia for one year. Then before it comes back to Boston, it spends about 10 years, we don't know where it went, but we do know it was not treated properly because when we see it again in 1901, it's cut apart. 14 feet of the sky are cut away and the bottom is all tattered. So clearly it went on the road somewhere and it wasn't fit into the appropriate building. But once again, it surfaces in 1901 to 1910, two pieces, the sky piece cut off, the bottom piece together, they're rolled up in a 50 foot wooden crate thrown out back behind the Cyclorama building, exposed to the elements where it rained on it, snowed on it, it was set on fire and vandalized several times. Amazing that it ever survived. But in 1910, salvation is about to happen because a Newark, a Newark, New Jersey department store owner by the name of Albert Hain gets wind of it. And he's intrigued. He, he thinks he wants to have this. So he sends his lawyer all the way up to Boston to buy it without seeing it. Here's what he planned to do with it. This is Mr. Haynes' department store. Actually, I was going to say, isn't that big, but 
book out there. That would be kind of silly to say, wouldn't it? This multi-story department store that Mr. Hain owned had an open atrium on the inside of it. And what Mr. Hain did with the painting was he sliced it into vertical pieces and hung several pieces from the ceiling to the floor in the atrium of his store so his patrons could see it. Clearly, it is no longer a cyclorama. It's now a shower curtain, more or less. <laughs> now, <clears throat> Mr. Hain then took it on the road after it hung in the store for about a year, and he takes it to armories in Washington, New York, and Baltimore. And when he hung it in the armory in Baltimore, a lady shows up and launches into a wonderful lecture about Mr. Pickett's role in the Battle of Gettysburg. That would be Mrs. Pickett. She spent much of the rest of her life defending her husband's honor because he died in 1875. She lived much, much longer because she was much younger. In any case, that must have been kind of neat to hang out there and hear Mrs. Pickett talk. Now, when it was in this armory in Washington, a young clerk who worked in the pension department by the name of Charles Howard, you probably know his dad, Oliver Otis Howard, general of the 11th Corps at Gettysburg. Well, young Charles Howard said that he knew there would be a reunion in Gettysburg the following year, and he felt that it would only be right to have that cyclorama there for the veterans. So on his advice, the cyclorama <coughs> arrives in Gettysburg in time for the 1913 reunion when 55,000 veterans of the blue and gray come to Gettysburg. At that time, it was not hung like a cyclorama. They're gonna build a temporary building that was kind of short and it doesn't have a diorama and it doesn't have a platform, it doesn't have a, uh, an overhead canopy. So it is not really considered a cyclorama. But this is the building. Anybody here in the room ever remember this building in Gettysburg? It went down in 1952, or 62. And it was, today's location is where the tour center is in Gettysburg, up on Cemetery Hill. So anyway, it was in that building. Uh, notice it says temporary. Also notice how long it lasted. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's where it lived all those years. And for most of those years, it was a private enterprise. Mr. Haynes still owns it. And then his estate owns it. But finally, it will be taken over. But when it's in that little tile building in Gettysburg, the artist shows up one day, and they ask him to go and certify that this was one of his original paintings. So he will go in there, and he will acknowledge that, yes, indeed, it was his. And it's at that time he reveals that he signed it, sort of. His signature was himself. This is him in the painting. So here he is on the scaffolding while it's being produced in front of his self-portrait. And here's what it looks like. Cool how he makes himself an officer, huh? <laughs> All right, so 1913 to 42, it's, a, it's private hands. But in 1942, the National Park Service will finally buy it because Mr. Hain was interested in selling it. In 1948, by this time, this thing's a mess. It's all stretched out, it's torn, it's full of holes, it's losing paint, it's nailed to wooden beams in the, in the temporary building. So the superintendent decides if he doesn't do something quick, it's gonna fall apart. So he will hire this young artist to do some emergency stabilization. Now that really didn't amount to much, it's not a conservation. But finally, in 1959, President Eisenhower conceives an idea that in anticipation for the 100th anniversary of the Civil War, new visitor centers will be built. It's called Mission 66. And one of those new visitor centers will be Gettysburg. So that would be the, what we know of as the old Cyclorama building you're all familiar with. That was the Mission 66 building. And so in, in anticipation of that building, a serious conservation project went, was put onto this painting. Now, 
Let me ask you a question. How many of you owned an 8-track player? And don't lie to me, I know you did. Okay, 8-track player. That was state of the art. How long did that last? About three years before cassette tapes came through? <coughs> this conservation job was state of the art in, 18, in 1959. But we all know state of the art is relative. It turned out that some of the methods used in that conservation, which in specifically dealt with animal glues and resin waxes, <coughs> turned out to be harmful to the painting and accelerated its deterioration. So now the oil paint was being forced off the canvas. If, if not for the most current conservation project, this painting had but few years left. So this particular conservation would end up having to be completely undone <coughs> by the most recent conservation. In any case, this was where it lived at that time, and this became its conservation studio. So let me show you what things were looking like. Remember? Yes. Not very pretty, was it? Very yellow, very dingy, no diorama, no canopy, no hyperbolic shape, which is why you see these folds. That's because it's, not, it's supposed to be hanging this way, and it wrinkled because it wasn't hung that way. So this is what we were working with. Now, this is the team that comes to the rescue. David Olin from Great Falls, Virginia, who worked in the, in the um, Library of Congress and the National Archives on historical art. And he's going to amass this team. These four people right here at the end, they're from Poland. They had just spent about 10 years restoring two cycloromas in Europe, so they got a lot of experience. So they all get to work. Now, here you see them taking the first step of any massive project, and that is creating a study or formulating a plan. It's always good to have a plan so you know what you're going to deviate from. <laughs> That's pretty much what happens with this plan. This plan was woefully inadequate once the, the, the whole conservation thing got going because there was so much wrong with this painting. Let me show you one, of, or one or two of the things. This is it up close. You see all the white spots? That's where paint had fallen off. But you never, you know, remember how you never got to see it like that because it was always dark? and you were 40 feet away, well, if you have seen it up close, that's what you would have seen. In this picture, you see the blue tapes? That's a seam, and instead of it going top to bottom, it kind of stretched out and was heading for the side. All of the seams were like that in the painting. All those seams were reopened, and this painting was worked on in panels. This is, now remember I, showed you, I told you about the original drawings that were sketched onto the raw canvas? They would have been sketched on there with graphite pencil. So they would have been visible today in infrared lighting. So you see what they're doing right here? They're trying to find those original grid lines, and here's why. In order to decide how big the original painting was, all you have to do is find the grid lines and map it out. Consistently, four-foot blocks all the way around would tell you what the painting looked like. So they went ahead and tried to find them, and they did. Check it out. This is the painting before conservation, that's what we discovered was missing. Everything you see white was missing. So all that's gonna be restored throughout this conservation project. This part in particular, they felt, feel might be where it had caught fire. And I'll show you what they did with that in 1959. But this is the final product. All those white sp spots have been restored. So, this is very interesting. This, there's some real serious issues going on with this painting originally. This is what it looked like in 1886 when it hung up there in Boston. You see, this is the wall that's on Hancock Avenue. After you pass the angle and you keep on driving up toward the Bryan Farm, you got that nice straight stone wall. Well, look how it looked in the painting before we conserved it. 
somehow it developed this really cool looking dog leg in the wall. There's no Pennsylvania farmer going to build a stupid wall like that if he's so <laughs> So we've got to find out what's wrong with this painting. Well, let's find out. Keep your eyes on this set of figures right here. You've got a soldier back here, a soldier up here, and they're carrying a litter with a wounded guy, right? There's some of him, as it appeared before we did the conservation. He appears to have lost a few things. Here's how it happens. This, look at the red lines up there. And then look at the rectangle, the yellow rectangle. The, everything between these red lines was lost, missing, just completely gone. The only piece that remained of it was this piece, and we found it stitched over here. See that guy right there? It was so right on top of the, the back end. So that means that becomes this. Got it? Took a psychiatrist about two months to figure that out. <laughs> we fixed it, by the way. Okay, now, another problem it had going for it was, remember the original painting had a diorama. So in, in anticipation of having a diorama, you don't need to paint details along the bottom. If you have a well, you paint in half the well in the painting, and you make real rocks create the front half, right? So what happens if you don't have a diorama? You can't just have half of everything down there. So in 1959, they took some of that sky scraps and they stitched it onto the bottom of the painting and just painted in all that stuff. Well, we took it back off. So here's a, a scene showing you everything from that line down was removed. But you know something really curious we found out when we took it off? That underneath the paint that had been added on, we found the blue sky from the original sky part of the painting. This was, that was real cyclorama pieces that had been taken from the top and sewed to the bottom. What this allowed for us was that it gave us lots of material for patches so we could repair the cyclorama with the right weight and the right age canvas. Now I'll pass this around the room, but do I have to call security or will I get it back? <laughs> Started sure it. <laughs> yeah. I had an offer last night too, and I could tell he was lusting over it. <laughs> okay, so moving on. Lots of work to do. There was over there were several hundred holes in it. Some people some people recollected that there was a newspaper article in one of the 1880 or 90 papers about how the veterans got so excited they started shooting in the gallery. So they thought <laughs> that the holes were bullet holes. They were in fact places where the diorama pieces were shoved through the canvas, like to bring a fence out or to bring a well out. They would poke things through. So all these holes have to be repaired. We would take that fabric, cut perfectly shaped holes, glue them in place, and then form a grid line to support those particular patches so that with the manipulation of the canvas, they didn't work themselves loose and fall back out. Lots of that to do, lots and lots and lots of linear feet of seams and tears that had to be fixed using regular hemostats, medical instruments, and curved upholstery needles. Lots of work. The wrinkles had to be gotten out, so they take a regular house iron, iron the canvas, and then lay heavy slabs of marble on them to get all those wrinkles out so we could reshape it properly. Then, with all that much of it done, that's the conservation part. When that's done, it's time to move into the new house, even though the new house isn't finished yet. Because if we'd have rebuilt the, the cyclorama in the old place, we'd have never got it moved out, we'd have never got it fit into this building. So, in pieces, it's brought into this building. We're about a year from completion when those pieces were moved into that building. The only, it's the only building project I ever saw that was built from the inside out instead of the outside in. 
And it was just to accommodate the pain. Now, how does one rebuild a cyclorama? Well, no one alive has ever done that, but we checked the books and we got to work. But it's best to start with a full-size piece of raw canvas. Where do you go to buy a canvas 400 by 50 feet? Not Walmart, trust me. The only place in the world that makes canvas that big today is China. The original canvas was Belgian canvas that was made on carpet looms, but they don't make it in Belgium anymore, so we had to go to China. So we get ourselves the canvas. We hang it on iron rings, just like the original. See up here the big iron ring? That's how they're hung. Now, there's an iron ring at the top and an iron ring that fits through this seam right here. So there it is hanging on the bottom. Now, if you take something like this, take a massive piece of material, put a ring up here, a ring down here, hang the cloth, it's going to stretch because it weighs tons. But it can't stretch at the top because there's an iron ring. And it can't stretch at the bottom because there's an iron ring. Where does it stretch? In the middle. So what are you going to do with that floppy middle? Hang weights all around the bottom, 25 pounds every three feet, which is about 3,600 pounds. And within 48 hours, this canvas will assume all by itself the hyperbolic shape. And it did. As soon as we put the weights on it, we got the most perfect hyperbolic shaped canvas you ever saw. It was magnificent. This is a, this is a phenomenon of the weave that the cyclorama painters learned to deal with. It isn't something they intentionally put there. So there it is. Now, once you have this big, beautiful cyclorama with nothing on it, you have to do something. So we're going to attach the old to the new. But if you were to look at this painting up close, for not from the platform, that's how it would look. It wouldn't look right because of that hyperbole. So you're going to have to step up on the platform to see it. Now, we're going to take the old canvas and remind it that it's supposed to be shaped. So we lay it on shaping tables and warm it for a little while. And once it remembers that it's hyperbolic, we're going to sew the old stuff to the new stuff. So there you have it. Everything you see white is new, and then you have the old stuff. And now that's one section out of 28 that's going to be put up back onto the iron ring, hopefully for good, for many, many years. And once all 28 of them are put up, we're going to stitch it all together. And now we have our beautiful cyclorama again, sort of. We don't have a sky yet. Now, where do you go to find out what the sky looked like? We, we could stick a sky up there. We could make one up. Yeah, let's put a computer sky up there. We don't want a computer sky. This is a historical painting. So we have to go find out what the sky looked like at 3 p.m. July 3, 1863. Anybody remember? <laughs> we didn't either. <laughs> okay. But we did find out something. There was a very boring human being by the name of Professor Michael Jacobs who taught math and science at Gettysburg College for 40 years, including the, the war years. And three times a day, that man recorded the temperature, the cloud cover, and the barometer reading. And this is what he said about July 3rd. There's our sky. Of course, it's not very specific. I mean, you could probably wing it from there, but we really don't want to wing it. So at the same time we were at this point in our project, something really exciting happened. The Gettysburg Foundation put a historian on an airplane, sent that person to Chicago, and that person was me. And they sent me to the Chicago History Center and they said, go find some cool stuff to borrow to put in our new museum. So I'm up at the History Center and I'm looking through the card catalog and I see the word 
Filippito. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's natural. Of course his name's there. That's where the first Chicago's Lake Larama was, right? But I was curious, so I looked at the card and it said, oil painting for almost five feet tall and about one third of 50 feet wide. So about 10, a little over 10 feet because it wasn't all there. And I asked if I could see it. And you know what it was? The original study, the original watercolor that Mr. Filippito created before he launched on the major project. Can you imagine? I almost flew home from Chicago without the airplane. I was so happy. <laughs> this was our beautiful, priceless sky. So with this, we have our beautiful sky. Now let me tell you how they got here, those paintings. Does anybody know Mr. Gunther? He was a famous confectioner, right? And he was also a little quirky, I understand. He was the guy who helped bring Libby Prison to Chicago to exhibit it, brick by brick. And once it was built, he used it to stuff all his Civil War artifacts in it as a museum. And among those artifacts were many oil paintings, including the original Filippito oil study. That collection, Mr. Gunther's collection, became the heart and soul of the Chicago History Center collection. That's how they happened to have that beautiful study that worked so well for us. So there's our beautiful recreated sky. Awesome, right? Thank you, Chicago. Now, only thing we got left is the diorama. Uh, we, fortunately, we have pictures, photographs from the 1880s that showed us some of the diorama in each of these pictures. So here's one, here's one, here's one. So we could see what it's supposed to look like. So this job was a little easier. So we mapped it out, and then we got to work. We truck in 13 tractor trailers full of styrofoam. Those, this styrofoam actually came from Chicago because it was, this is, ever hear of the Taylor Studios here? It's a design studio that created the environments for the Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian. So even though they never made a, a, di a diorama, they were willing to give it a try. So they mapped it all out and they made all the, the proper undulations in the ground and then they promptly sawed it all in pieces and stuffed it in tractor trailers and shipped it off to Gettysburg. So here it is, just moved in, it's not reassembled yet. But anyway, after you get the ground cover, then you gotta go out and get yourself some artificial sticks, some fake grass, some fake bushes. You can use real rocks if you want to. <laughs> the reason they're fake is for is this reason. Back in the 1880s, if you were building a cyclorama and putting it on exhibit, and you wanna create your diorama, you would go outside and bring in wheelbarrows full of real dirt. And you would go out and find yourself a couple of bushes and yank them out of the ground and bring them in and replant them. And within a month, they're gonna dry up and turn into tinder. And then all it takes is one stray spark from a gas lantern and you've lost your big oil painting. That's why many cycloromas are no longer here today. Many of them burned. So in any case, we weren't gonna take that chance. This is all fire retardant stuff. <coughs> now, we only have one more thing we need to put in our diorama and that is battle debris. We have to make it look like a battlefield. And you, as we all know, that's pretty messy. So where do you go to get used battle stuff? Well, we were very fortunate that the reenactment community was so proud to be a part of this project. So they're going to come in droves with their used reenactment equipment. Now, there's one problem with that. How many of you people know reenactors? Okay, so let me, let me offend you among your friends. Reenactors wear their gear for a whole weekend. They eat in it, sleep in it, drink in it, do everything, in, they do everything like sweat in it. Then they go home and they don't wash it. 
they just kind of air it out and put it away and then get it back out and do it again. Right. So a reenactor announces himself about two hours ahead of time. <laughs> so when we got all this awesome stuff, we were just somewhat reluctant to introduce it close to our beautiful new people. <laughs> so we had to put it through a curatorial regimen of many hours in the deep freeze and then bring it out in thought and then many more hours in the deep freeze and then bring it back out in thought and then it's ready. Then we bring it in and populate our beautiful diorama. So let me show you what it looks like. It's beautiful. This is what it looks like from the side, but this is what it looks like viewing it from the platform. Now, the, the, the gallery is in somewhat semi-darkness. So even though in bright light you can see the line, not always. This one, the front of the well, the third stick of the well, some of the brush and the front of the fence are all three-dimensional objects. <clears throat> the rest of it in the background is painting. Pretty well done, isn't it? It really does a great job. Now, you can have five more minutes. I'm going to give you some cool things about that are in the painting that when you go there now, you can go look for, OK? First, let's start with these lovely little red flowers in the wheat field to the east view in the painting. Aren't they pretty? They're corn poppies, and they don't grow in America. <laughs> However, you, if we're going to hire a French guy, we're going to get corn poppies because they grow very prolifically in Europe, especially on disturbed soil, which would be battlefields. And there are many of those in Europe. Had it not been corn poppies, he would have used some kind of red or a bright, vivid color, because that's a device artists use to provide depth of field. So in this case, it happens to be something that doesn't grow in Gettysburg. Whatever. <laughs> OK, now, when you get to Gettysburg, I challenge you to find this. There's a fence line in the background, and while we were cleaning the painting up close, we discovered several figures of soldiers that were sketched in and never painted. You see them? Isn't that cool? People say, well, now did you paint them? No. A conservationist's job is to restore it to its original intent. If they didn't paint them, we didn't paint them. So they're still there. And it's kind of neat, but they're not as easy as you might think. I'll give you one hint, look east. See if you can find them, okay? People comment constantly about our funny looking haystacks. Yes, they are rather funny looking, but they wouldn't have been back then. People constantly use the word, they look European. Do you know who settled Adams County, Pennsylvania? The Germans. And you know what? That is what their haystacks look like. This is a picture of the Leitner Farm. If any of you are really diehard Gettysburgs, you know the Leitner Farm was there during the battle. So in 1878, just a couple years later, whoops, look what's right there. About 700 yards from the current Cemetery Ridge is the Leitner Farm, and look at those haystacks. This is the, con this is the um, a piece of view of the Chicago cyclorama. They actually had those very same haystacks in the diorama. You would have to look around at these giant haystacks. And I'll give it to you that they didn't look exactly like that. But I know how it got like that. Check out this picture. See the see this haystack in the painting? Look what these soldiers are doing. They're cutting off hay, bundling it, and taking it off to the wounded. So even though it might be a little tidier than it actually would have looked then, that's why they look like that. So you've got to give it to us. We get to keep the haystack. Now, these two guys are interesting. This is Peter and Robert Byrd. They were nowhere near July 3rd Cemetery Ridge. They were with the Iron Brigade, and they fought around McPherson's barn on the first day, and they got those wounds that you see depicted. 
And when you see them in the painting, you'll, they're easy to pick out because they're the two guys that are looking at you, seemingly oblivious to the battle going on behind them. Basically, they were on the battlefield in 1882 when the artist came to do his research. And they met, and they became friends. And look, they got painted into the painting. What an honor. Let me read you something kind of fun. Mr. Heine, who is the, um, he was the artist of the Atlanta, he left diaries. And in the diary, he talks about this. He says, this is somebody talking about Heine. He says, tell him you're interested to invest some money into the American Panorama Company, and Heine will ask you if you want a portrait. Of course you want. And in a moment, you're called on to one of the scaffolds, have to sit there before a young man with a remarkable mop of hair on his head. He's an exceptional portraitist, and looking at you with a friendly smile, he uses quickly his brushes, and before you realize it, one of the attacking troopers has got your face. <laughs> if you had offered a larger sum of money, you could have made it to one of the officers. <laughs> yeah, I would have done that. So that's how the Bird Brothers got in the painting. See if you can find it. Now, this scene is looking near the building that's supposed to be uh, Meade's headquarters. And I want you to notice this figure right here. Does he look familiar? Very pale face, very dark hair with dark beard, wearing a suit coat. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln. Oral history tells us that Lincoln is painted here as a wounded man to represent the wounded nation. Why we were fighting the Civil War to begin. This figure close by is the figure of Dr. David Studi. He, uh, he actually lived in Gettysburg up on Cemetery Hill when the war fighting broke out. He walks right down the Tawny Town Road and he sets up shop helping with surgery at this location because the lady who owned that was Lydia Leister, that farm, and that's Dr. Studi, Lydia's brother. So <coughs> he's a real person. This is the scene showing, and as you all got your question right on the test tonight, Armistead on a horse incorrectly. That was conveyed to the artist because of the veterans complaining about it, but by the time version two was created, it was too late, but versions number three and four, he is not on a horse. Now, I will show you something cool. If you saw that up close, see how the old sketched in line was and how the portrait painter who did the face didn't stay completely true to the sketched in lines? The reason you can't see it from the platform is just too far away, but clearly, there was a kind of a disconnect between the sketch and the actual painting. And this is the guy who just got his Medal of Honor, the Wisconsin-born Lieutenant Alonzo Cushing. Remember him? Well, there he is in the painting. And you may recall the story of Alonzo Cushing's mortal wounding. He's at the back of his gun during the cannonade. He takes a round to the guts. He's, asked, he's ordered or told to get off the field, but he refuses because there aren't enough men to man the gun, so he stays. And the description of him by one of his colleagues was that he was seen standing, standing bravely at his gun, clutching his abdomen, blood pouring through his fingers as he holds his entrails in place. Is that a disgusting picture? But look, you see his hand on his gut, but you don't see the gore, you don't see the blood, you don't see the entrails, and you don't see them on purpose. <clears throat> this is Victorian America in the 1880s, and they protected their women and children from that sort of thing, and they knew many women would come to see these paintings. So isn't it a skillful artist that can create all that pageantry of war and battle and not use all that gore to do it? So it's pretty remarkable, very, very Victorian. And this is General Hancock on a black horse, which is remarkable because we saw General Gibbon and General Webb on white horses, 
as most of the good guys were, <laughs> the winning team. And interestingly, history tells us that Hancock's horse was white. So I have no idea why he's on a black horse in this painting. And all that remains is for you all to get your butts on a plane and go see my painting. <laughs> Said, uh, you said something about you came to the Chicago History Center. So my first said historical society was the Chicago History Center. History, History, History Museum. Museum. That's oh, it. Oh, okay. The Sorry about that. That's it. You're right. Okay, yeah. right. It just changed its name. It changed its name. Any other? Any questions? Yes. I was going to ask you when you showed all that styrofoam big trucks. <laughs> if you were able to find the exact same styrofoam that they would have used in 1870. <laughs> <laughs> what I wanted was, I don't understand why, why the coming of, of early motion pictures had an effect on this. Because in the 1890s, we're not talking about Clark Gable and Gone with the Wind. You're talking about Nickelodeon. Silent. And, and, and silent and, and cranking and looking at a little flickering picture. Yep. It doesn't seem to me to be competing technology. I agree. What I wondered is, could part of the problem have been that with two dozen of these making the rounds in the United States, that oh, so many people had already seen it, and it was the kind of thing that you were only going to see perhaps once, and that, that it just exhausted the audience for it. If there had only been one of them it in Chicago or Philadelphia, people would have come from all over the nation to see it. And, and I it agree. continued on forever, but could it have just, just burned out? It just its, saturated the the country. I agree. It's kind of like Gone with the Wind. I mean, how many times can you see it, you know? Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. I, I, don't tell how many times I've seen it. How much did the restoration cost that you paid for it? $13.8 million. And it was always kept separately financially from the building project of the museum because, as you may recall, the building project was always to be a private enterprise. And you know it got controversy when it wasn't always kept that way. But because the Slaykuwama is owned by the National Park Service as an artifact, it was never considered part of that bigger project. So it was okay for some federal money. And particularly, um, Murtha just died. He saw to it that about nine million of the money we spent went in federal money, went into the conservation. The state of Pennsylvania gave two additional million because it was heritage tourism for our state. So there's 11 out of the, of the remaining amount. And the remaining amount was part of the museum project because it in, included the building and it included the AV and the lighting for the program, not the actual building. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the old cyclorama and the, and the fact that the building is still there? Uh, what's, the, what's the legal obstacle to taking it down? Okay, it, it, was, it was passed in Congress to remove it, but before that happened, a group called the Recent Past Preservationists, who happened to be fans of the, of the architect by the name of Mr. Neutra. Um, Mr. Neutra is a student of Frank Lloyd Wright, and somehow that imbues upon him the right to keep his ugly building in Gettysburg. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so this Recent Past Preservation Group threw injunctions in our way saying, we didn't look into alternative uses. It was strictly a paperwork snafu. Had we done our due diligence, we would have had all that taken care of in the beginning. 
but since we didn't, there was a delay, and it's just taking its good old time getting through, but the Park Service is, is about 99% confident it's just a matter of legalese and time, and it will eventually come down. It's just we got to get past it anymore. But it's still there. And no, no foreseeable hope of setting a date. They transported originally. Good like question. In the 1880s. Because was it all painted? Was it one canvas? Okay. First of all, it was it was 50 foot sections sewed together of Belgian raw Belgian linen. Okay. Now, when it came time to transport it, imagine here's your big round painting. Okay, and you're inside. Open one seam, and then take a massive wooden roll, drum, lean it on its side on that rail, and begin to roll the painting. And we roll it all the way up. I know, a massive. We're talking four tons here. You lay it down and you transport it onto a rail car and it goes to the city where it's going to be exhibited. It was a massive undertaking. It took quite a few weeks to set one. But that's how it was yeah. Did any of those European cycloramas or panoramas still survive from that period? Like loads, the of Paris? Loads of them. There's probably right now on exhibit in Russia, China, Switzerland, Austria, Germany, Hungary, Poland, about 30. And most of those were military related and most of them were propaganda. That's what they were pretty much used for in Europe. I mean, you know, you could have two of the same topic and it depended on which side painted it, how it would look. <laughs> I mean, it's like the, if, what if the Southerners had made this, you know? <laughs> Who knew? Anybody else? The Atlanta right now is in the condition ours was before our recent site, uh, recent conservation, and because of our the success of ours, they are now looking into getting grant money to do the same <coughs> restoration style for for theirs. They have some sky missing. They've got the issues with the undulation undulations in the canvas because it's not hyperbolic, and so they're they're thinking about doing that. But it's not yet. It's theirs is not up to par. So you and your husband will be moving to Atlanta. Visiting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I could learn to speak with a southern drawl if I have to to survive. <laughs> Any other questions? Okay. Thanks a whole lot for letting Thank you so much. <laughs> Sue, you're not finished yet. This was a wonderful presentation. Thank you. And we're going to send you home. Oh, thank you. With a $150 check made out to the Gettysburg Foundation. Thank you. In your name thank for you. this wonderful presentation. I appreciate that. More than thank you, you know. so much. Thank you. Sue and her husband had a wonderful day to explore the city and uh, the weather was in their favor. I'm so happy that they were able to uh, explore the city on foot, actually. So, see you next month. Next month, we will have Richard McMurray here, and his presentation will be A Georgian Looks at Sherman. <laughs>